Well, hey, everybody, welcome to the Pursue God podcast. It's Tuesday, which means it's time for some more systematic theology. I'm Pastor Brian, joined in the studio by Pastor Ross. Ross, today we're finally finishing up our sort of our three-part section on God, right? And which is really theology should start with God, I guess. Yes. And we started with God's, we Mm -hmm. started with his revelation and we talked about his nature. And today we're going to talk about God's work. So God's revelation was week one. God's nature was week two and God's work today. And there's two broad ways to think about God's work. What are they, Ross? Well, in general, we're talking about his relationship with the universe that he's made. And so there's what he's already done and there's what he's continuing to do with respect to the world around us. So number one is creation. Number two has always been called by scholars and theologians, God's providence. All right, so let's talk a little bit about God's creation. And this one's, this one's a little bit, I guess, the simpler one, but I think it's, there's four, there are four views we're going to talk about around God and creation that really fall short of what the Bible reveals. So why don't we start with what does the Bible say just in general terms about creation, and what are some of those views we need to watch out for? Right, so simply the Bible says that God made everything, okay? And and, uh, all the clues in the Bible are that God really made everything out of nothing, and he did it by just the sheer imposition of his will. God spoke, and it came into being. And so, you know, you could, if you wanted to dig a little deeper, you could see how all the different uh, members of the Trinity are involved in creation. The Son is an agent of creation. The Holy Spirit is involved in creation. And what God made was very good. And so he made it for his glory. He didn't need anything. We talked about that last time. Um, and so basically, the simple, to boil it down, God made everything out of nothing. Okay. Now let's contrast that with some some ideas, some theologies that, are, that aren't biblical around the idea of creation and how God played into that. The first one would be materialism. What is materialism, and why is it not biblical? Right, materialism recognizes that, that nature exists. It wouldn't call it creation because materialism posits that there is no God. So you have these two these two entities in relationship with each other. You have God and you have the, the created world, which you could call it nature or creation, whatever you want. And, and so every view is going to have some particular perspective on those two things and how they relate. Materialism says that we accept this, this natural world around us, but we don't accept that there's a God. So obviously that's not biblical. That's not, yes, that's not biblical. Neither is the second one, pantheism. And this is the idea that views nature and God as one inseparable reality, which I guess comes from the root of the word pan, right? Right, pan is all things. All things are God, pantheism. And so the idea you have God, you have nature, they're not distinct. That, na- that nature, the created world, is um, not distinct from God, it's not dependent on Him. In fact, it is suffused with, div- with divinity. In this view, God is viewed at, not as a personal being, but as really the sum total of all that is. And so when you hear people say, yes, there's, uh, part of God is within you, or mm-hmm. God is everywhere, a lot of times they're reflecting a pantheist perspective. Okay, so the third one is dualism, and this is, this is an ideal, ideology that pictures nature and God existing eternally side by side. I guess, Ross, at first glance, that sounds kind of biblical. What's wrong with that? Well, the idea in dualism is that, God, that the, 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 nat- the natural world was not created. 
it's self-existent. Mm. And we talked last week how only God is self-existent. And so that, that's where this one goes wrong, mm-hmm. because nature and God are somehow seen as equal, um, independent of each other. And then the last one is deism. And this, this is one that I think especially Americans should be aware of. Deists imagine that God created but doesn't rule. He's not involved. So this is sort of the, the watchmaker. The yeah, yeah, the, the cosmic watchmaker yeah. who wound it up, set it up, and then left. And I know a bunch of people who are practical deists in, in, the, real wor- in the real world. And so God made it. There's an acknowledgment that God made it, but there's not this sense that God is actually involved, that he's actually nearby as, in terms of our last session, that God is imminent. And, and so there's not this sense that God is really ruling, God is really helping anybody, God is answering prayer, or, or whatever. Uh, he wound it up, he walked away. So if, you know, students who are going to school today go to the university or go to the public school system, they're learning science. What, what are they going to be taught in the public school systems in, in modern science? Yeah, they're going to be taught the, the philosophy of materialism. The whole, the whole basis of modern science is built on the assumption that there's nothing beyond what we can see and measure um, and so the idea of God or supernatural realm is ruled out um, in advance, before the fact, uh, simply because of by the definitions of how science understands reality. Okay, so that's the easy part of today's topic, because creation is, is the part of God's work that's complete. Mm-hmm. God doesn't create anymore. There's no more creation he's, he's doing. Is that yeah, true, I that's, guess? That's true, because in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, it talks about how God finished everything and then he rested. Well, he rested in a sense, in the sense of creation, but not in the sense that he's, he's not involved anymore. He's still at work, but in work in a different way. Right, and that's called... That's called providence. Providence, yeah. yeah. And so providence is defined as that continuing relationship of God with his creation. And we can sort of break this down using a bunch of different words. And this is where we're going to, if you're driving along listen to, listening to today's podcast, this is where you might need to listen a couple times, maybe even listen again when you're at home and you can take some notes or you can find all, this, all these resources online at PursueGod.org. But the first part of God's providence is his preservation. What does that mean? Right. So the bigger picture of providence, we're asking the question, how is God involved in his created world? And what does it mean that God is involved? What does that look like? How does that pan out? And the first one, preservation, is that God is uh, keeping everything that he created in existence. God's keeping the whole cosmos, the whole uh, universe uh, going. And so he's investing. He didn't just, again, the deist God wind it up, walk away. No, God is winding it all the time, so to speak. God is continually involved in sustaining um, and, and holding his creation together. Yeah, so, so if you want a visual for this, a metaphor for this, a Christian views God as having his hands on the steering wheel still. Mm-hmm. Right? That's what mm-hmm. it would mean that, that God is preserving. He's still preserving everything he's created. Right? He's right. holding it all together, as it says in, in uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. It says Jesus holds it all together, right? Yeah. Hebrews yeah. 1 is he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. Right, so that's really a very encouraging idea to know that you know, that God has his hands on the whole thing, you know? And so it's like, 
you know, he had, God has his hands on the steering wheel. Now, more and more people are talking about autonomous driving cars. <laughs> you know, you get in and you're, you drive your, your Tesla drives itself until it has an accident, right? But um, the, idea is that, the idea is that the universe isn't self-driving. God is driving it all, mm-hmm. along the way. Now, this is really cool. I, I, I love this in your article, Ross, that you, you, you say what the scientist calls the laws of nature. This is a really good way to mm-hmm. think about this. Are simply God's regular ways of acting to sustain his creation. Yeah, the idea is that it's God's preservation that gives consistency, regularity to uh, the created world. It's why when the apple falls off the tree, it always falls, and it falls toward the larger object to the earth. It's why the speed of light, you know, we can measure those things and, and there's constants, there's consistent constants throughout. And, and so from a materialist point of view, you just say, oh, those are the laws of nature. Mm-hmm. From the, the creationist point of view, you could say, well, that's how God made it, that's how he programmed it, and it's running on its programming. But I think, a, I think a more biblical view is to say, no, God is actually still involved in his creation, making sure that things run the way he intended them and designed them to run. Mm. Which, which kind of brings up the idea of a miracle then. So one way to view a miracle is when God actually, a lot of times he pauses or he, sust- or he, he pauses what he would normally uphold as the law of nature, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And he, he, he intervenes in a different way, right? We see that sometimes in the Old, in the Old Testament mm-hmm. where it talked about the sun stands still. That's one obvious example of that. Right. And I think one of the advantages of this perspective um, is that it, it, you don't have to have, like, nature's running on its own, and God suddenly takes the wheel and does something, and then he lets nature run on its own. That's how I think a lot of secular people look at the idea of miracles, mm. But what we're saying is, no, God is running things all along the whole time, and he decides to do it like this, do something special, and then, but he's got his hands on the wheel the whole time, and so in this particular case, he decides to make the car do something that it normally wouldn't, you wouldn't expect it to do. Yeah, that's good. Okay, so not only does God preserve what he has made, that's preservation, but he also actively govern it, governs it, and that's the second thing we're going to talk about, that's called governance. Right, and so basically the, it, it premises that God has purposes, that God has plans, and, he, and in the Bible it reveals quite clearly that God is a purposeful God, that, that he's taking the universe in a certain direction. And so governance is simply how God is directing his creation and all the elements of his creation uh, to accomplish the purposes that he has in mind. And so we're, we're talking about how... Uh, governance, another way to talk about that is God's kingship or God's rule over what he's made. Okay, so let me give you some examples of this. And Ross, you go ahead and stop me if you need to, to interject. But this means that God controls the forces of nature. You can mm-hmm. see an example of that in Job 37, verses 6 to 13. It means that he guides and directs the animal creation, Psalm 104. He directs human history and the destiny of nations, Acts 17, Job 12. God works in the circumstances of individual persons even, right? So now mm-hmm. we're getting personal, right. Romans 8, 28. Let's pause on that one for a second. Yeah. Romans 8, 28, that's kind of a popular verse. What is it? Right, what is that it says that God causes all things to work together for the good for those who love him who are called according to his purpose. So it says God is working in all things in our lives, 
uh, and he has a purpose that he's doing through through that. And so, you know, kind of getting ahead, but this this is uh, we're going to see that this is part of the answer to how can Christians get through difficult times, trials and suffering and and challenging things and evil things that happen to us because we have this bigger picture that God is governing and he's governing for our good. Yeah, we'll get to that because that's probably one that people are starting to think already. Like, mm-hmm. wait, hold on a second. Wait, if God, if it, if this isn't just a deist God, if he's actively, if he actively has his hand on the wheel, then I got, I've got a bone to pick with him, right? Because of some of the things right. that have happened in my life or exactly my family's yep. life. So we'll make sure to get to that. So be sure to listen all the way to the end of the podcast. But I like this this last one you say is that God even rules in what appears to be chance occurrences like that's what proverbs sixteen thirty three says so even when it seems like it's chance you're saying that god actually has a hand in that yeah and you know god's normal way of working in creation is that if you roll the dice or if you flip the coin a hundred times it's going to be tails 50 times and heads 50 times but in any given circumstance god could say look i want it to come up heads if he wants to because mm-hmm. he's in charge so this means that history is purposeful History isn't random, it's purposeful. It's always moving forward toward the fulfillment of God's plans. And, and I think we need to say, while we're talking about governance, and again, we'll get into this a little bit more, is we need to affirm that his, govern, his government is always good. Now, government, uh, human government isn't always good. In fact, right. it's rarely good. Rarely good, yeah. But God's government, how God governs things, is always good, even though we, we, we might not necessarily notice it just yet. Right, and so it's going back to what we talked about in the last topic, is that it's the character of God. If God is righteous and he's holy and he's loving and wise and merciful and all the things that we saw about him previously, then he's going to govern his creation on the basis of his character. That's why we can trust him no matter what happens. Okay, now closely related to God's governance, we've got, we've got I think, one of the trickiest ones that people may, maybe maybe would not have even have heard this word before. In fact, Ross, I've, I've been mentoring my son and a couple of his buddies, and we just talked about this verse that we're going to talk about here. And I didn't, I wish I, I wish I would have had the conversation after we had this conversation, <laughs> because there's a word for it now. And the word is concurrence. What, is, what does concurrence mean in, okay. when it comes to God? Yeah, concurrence is how, it means that God, in fulfilling his purposes that God cooperates with the create things that he's made. Okay, and so um, he's going to direct the elements of his creation to bring about his purposes. So really, concurrence becomes an issue when you have God at work and human, be- human choices at work. So you have, with the rest of creation, you know, nature, the snowfall, uh, rain, all that, th- there's no sense of personal individual identity or will involved in, in any of that, so we don't have any problem saying God is, you know, makes the sunshine and the rainfall and so forth. But when we talk about human choices and how God's choices interact with human choices, then we have to talk about concurrence. And it's a tricky, it's a tricky issue because... We're going like, wait, do I as a human being, are my choices meaningful? Are they real? Um, Well, if God is governing everything and he's moving everything toward his purpose, does that mean that my choices don't count or that I'm not responsible for them? And so there's a lot of implications for this idea of concurrence. Now, in some some, um, theological frameworks, they'll talk about 
we talk about the governance of God, people will use the word the sovereignty of God, which means God is in control. It's another way of talking about governance. But that has, some, in, some, in some circles, as a negative connotation. But regardless, if God is sovereign, if God is going to have his will be done in the end, what does that mean for me as a human being, and how do my choices fit into that? And so the idea of concurrence is that God's choices and human choices concur. They, they work together, and God works through those choices that people make to accomplish his will. Yeah, here's that verse I was talking about, Proverbs 16, 9. It says, we can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. So we see concurrence there. That, mm-hmm. In fact, that's what we talked about is God, we still have a responsibility to make our plans, mm-hmm. but God determines our steps. And, and at the end of the day, we can't control every, every outcome Right. Even even when it comes to our own decision making, we but we we should still make our plans. Now, Ross, what I told the the guys last week when we were talking about this verse, they said, "Look, that part of what this means is we should make our plans according to everything we've read so far in Proverbs." Right here, we are at Proverbs right. sixteen, right. and the other all the Proverbs are all about basically the principles that God has given to us. That if you they're not promises, but they're principles that you know live this way and and this this will happen. Live this way and that'll happen. And so, generally speaking, you know, we talked about the law of nature, but God's principles generally are when you mm-hmm. when you you reap what you sow, you, right. when you do the right thing, usually something good comes out of it. But that's not even always true, right? Right, but generally true, yeah. And so, yeah, you want to live. You want to live. It's wise to live in step with the way God created the world to work. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's the idea. So, but again, it begs the question of human freedom and responsibility. So if God is truly governing the world, can we say that humans have free will? You know, what would you say to that, Ross? I'd say yes and no, okay? Right, so it depends on how you define that, the freedom of the will. So humans, if God is governing the world, that puts a limitation on human freedom in the sense that, that we, we can't really exercise our will completely independent of what God is up to, or in complete or outside of what God is up to, that you know, at some point in time, God is going to be able to work through our decisions one way or the other to accomplish His will. And so it's not absolute freedom, but on the, same, on the same token, the other side of the coin is that human beings can make choices that are not predetermined for us. They're not, um, we're not preconditioned to make a certain choice. We can make choices that really do flow from our own motives, our own thinking, our own attitudes, but our choices have real consequences. So it's not this sort of sense that there's fate and we can't resist fate, but there's this this more complex sense that um, God and our choices, God is able to take our human, independent, free, and willing choices and accomplish His purposes through those things. Now, really, this makes more sense when you when you think about a couple of extra words we're going to throw in here, that there are two causes for every event, primary causes and secondary causes. So the primary cause is what God plans and initiates, and the secondary cause or the secondary causes are the actions of God's creatures. So, Ross, what you're saying is, is that God works through means, but God is the primary mover of 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 all of history. Right, he's the one that you could put it this way, he he's the one who creates the game plan. He sets the overall goal, the agenda whatever. 
And then as we make our independent choices, for whatever motives we, we have, we may want to be in step with God's game plan, or we may not want to be. But God is big enough, I guess kind of the idea is that God is infinite and perfect enough that he can take secondary causes, like my choices, and he can use those, he can stack them all together to, to get us at the end of the day that we've accomplished his plan. Now let's let's kind of drill down on this with some examples. The the first example we should take is the most important, the most significant historic event in all of history. It's the crucifixion of Jesus. So how how is the crucifix how does the crucifixion of Jesus fit into you know God's working and and even human freedom in the midst of that? Some of the humans that were there in mm-hmm. and part of that story. Well, that's the book of Acts. I think this is really compelling, and it's helped, really helped me to understand this whole idea of concurrence. Because in the book of Acts, in a couple of places, it talks about how God purposed the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross. God intended the cross for the salvation of the human race, and so He knew. You know, His plan is: I'm going to, I'm going to, I am going to put salvation into effect. I'm going to make it happen. Well, that's going to have to require a lot of people to make individual choices along the way. Somebody chose to betray Jesus to the Roman authorities. Somebody chose to, you know, um, in, in his trial before the Jewish council, chose to vote against him, so to speak. You know, somebody chose to um, send him to be flogged and send him to the cross. There's different choices by a bunch of different people going on. And in Acts chapter 2, it says that this was God's prearranged plan, but it was actually carried out by, by lawless or wicked, wicked men. And so you see both actors, both uh, God's will at work, human will at work. And so what we're saying with concurrence, the idea is that Herod and Pilate and the uh, Jewish high, uh, high priests and so forth, that they're actually, and Judas, they're actually accountable for their actions that they were making free action, free choices based on their own motives. Whatever Judas's motive was, 30 pieces of silver, or maybe he thought Jesus should be a different kind of revolutionary. Whatever the motives uh, of Herod and Pilate and all, those motives were their motives, and they were real motives, and yet somehow God orchestrated that together to bring about his larger purpose of providing redemption for humanity. Yeah, so Acts, yeah. so Acts 4.28, I love this, yeah, it says, but everything they did was determined beforehand according to God's will. So there's God's primary cause, but, but there, the lawless men had the secondary cause, mm-hmm. even though they might not have realized that they were secondary. Right. You know, they might have thought right. they were primary, but actually this was determined beforehand that God was, that Jesus would go to the cross. It was determined way, way before even those lawless men were born. Right, and... The point of concurrence is that those individuals were not puppets, that God, God did not like pre-program them like a robot to do a certain task, that God's not responsible for Judas betraying Jesus, but that God was able to use that to fulfill his purpose. That's how, that's how infinite, how, I guess, big he is. So, so you're saying, let me, let me see if I can understand this, Ross. You're saying that God didn't just allow the crucifixion of Jesus. He didn't just passively allow it like he was saying, oh, good, good, I'm glad, 
I'm glad it turned out that way. Right. right. Exactly. That, that would be yep. too hands off. Right. Too passive. That's not how God, God's providence worked. You, you're saying that God willed it to happen. Because if he if he didn't cause it to happen, then there was no guarantee that it would have happened, and that'd be a big problem, right. wouldn't it? And then you know, there's there's a spectrum of views around this. Some people say that <clears throat> that God didn't will the particular choices of Judas, but He knew in advance because of His foreknowledge, He knew Judas was going to do that. <clears throat> um, so some people would be more comfortable using the the language that God allowed it to happen. Um, so it, it's a it's a tough balance to figure out because what we're trying to do is we say we say that God is not responsible for evil. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, though God is not responsible for evil acts that people did, um, but but the idea that God can take evil acts that people did, do and that He can still bring out a good purpose out of them. Okay, so that that's a good example, the crucifixion of Jesus. But I think there there's another example that people are have probably already have in their mind. I know I I know I have it in my mind whenever I talk about this, and it's prayer, right? Mm-hmm. So if, if God governs everything, and it all it all happens according to His will, Ross, why should I pray? And I know a lot of people say that. Why 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 bother even praying? God's in charge. Right. God's going to do what He wants to do anyway. Why should I pray? Well. Again, it goes back to the primary and secondary causes. God's the primary cause. He's going to do what he, what he needs to do, wants to do. But we are the secondary cause. So God is going to use secondary cause. He can use my prayers to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. So, you know, in, in this sense, it's probably not an accurate idea to think of prayer as a way to try to change God's mind. You know, sometimes some of us approach prayer to think, oh, man, I, I just really need to God, God to get my point of view so he'll figure it out, the right thing to do. You know, so I'm going to pray and bug him until he does that. But no, prayer is a way that God says, he's going to, I believe that what God wants to accomplish, he'll put it on the hearts of a people to pray for. And he'll, he'll direct and move and motivate us in our own individual choices and motives. I'm not a robot when it comes to prayer. I don't always know why I should pray a certain thing for, for a certain person. Um, but God uses all of those things. We have the privilege of being involved in that our prayers can be used by God to add up to that purpose that he's going to accomplish. Yeah, Ross, we're praying right now for a young, young woman in our church who's, who has cancer. And, and we're, I mean, just I feel like God's moving on my heart to pray for her. And I'm just I'm pleading and I'm interceding for her. What would you say to the person who says, you know, I think it's presumptuous to ask God to heal her? Like, you know, you, that, that's a little bit, that goes a little bit too far to say, to pray, should we pray for her healing? Is that, is that a biblical thing to do? Should we, or is that, a, is that like a, a televangelist? Thing yeah, well, it, it, it is a biblical thing if you read about in James chapter 5 and other places where we're given a model of doing that. But but from the point of view of God's governance, this topic today, it, it is a reasonable thing to do because, you know, God is not bound to answer the prayer the way I want him to answer it. He may not heal her, but he will use our prayers to accomplish whatever he wants to accomplish. And so I want to be involved in that. And, and he tells us to, you know, he tells us that we, we, we have the right to pray, uh, like Philippians chapter 4 says, you know, take all your your anxieties and cares and put them before him with thanksgiving. 
Um, and then in in First uh, John, we we learn that whatever God we pray that's according to God's will, He's going to do it. And so I don't always know God's will, but we're invited to, into the process. We're invited to be that what God is going to use to accomplish His will in the world. Okay, so let, that leaves us with the with kind of the big doozy here, right? And, and let's let's make sure to take some time talking about this because when, when we talk about how God works in creation, you. You have to talk about the problem of evil. If God is ruling, if he governs everything, then why does evil exist? So philosophers frame the question like this. Two, there's two parts to this. Number one is if God is able to prevent evil but not evil but not willing to do it, then he must be evil himself. Okay, mm-hmm. so let's put that out there. And then, or secondly, if God's willing to prevent evil but not able, then he must be impotent. So are the philosophers right? What's a biblical response to that? Right. Well, that, that response would be, from a biblical perspective, that that narrows it down to a false dichotomy. Okay? There's really more to it going on than that. Um, you know, first of all, evil's going to be a, in the world because God gave human beings choice. He, he created human beings with the choice to follow him or not to follow him. He gave Adam and Eve this, this very first thing in the garden. He said, I'm going to give you a choice. Don't eat that fruit. And if you do, you'll die. You know, so he gave the consequences of the choice. And so, he's, so that's a meaningful choice, and we see the consequences that they, that they uh, reaped because of that. And so, you know, so evil's a necessary part of creation, uh, but God didn't, God didn't create it. You could say he created the possibility of it uh, because of human beings have meaningful choices. Um, but, but there's a bigger picture of this that more than just if God is able to prevent but doesn't, he's bad. And if, he, if he's willing but he, not, but he doesn't, then he's, then he's powerless. Because that, those don't take into account larger purposes that God might have you know, through the thing, he, how he can use evil to bring forth good, and they don't take into account the time frame either. So, so we have this bigger picture of, wait, we don't see the final chapter written yet about what seems to be an evil situation in the world, and, and, and we don't know what the time frame is for that to work itself out. So the, the Bible gives us this bigger perspective um, that helps us say, well, it's not quite as just simple and cut and dried as those two alternatives. Yeah, and there's a couple examples. There's many examples, but let's just let's mention a couple to help people to really understand this and be able to bite into this. So, one example that comes to mind, Ross, is when Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. Obviously, his brothers committed an evil act that wronged him. And by the way, one of those brothers ended up being in the you know Jesus came the from the lineage, of, Jesus, the lineage yeah. of Judah, not Joseph. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, that's a whole whole different topic. How God still used a guy like right. that, right? Right. But years later, we see, if you know the Joseph story from Genesis, Joseph was able to see the final result and the larger time frame. But I'm sure when Joseph was sitting there in prison, mm-hmm. having been wrong, wrongfully accused, or even before that, when he's mm-hmm. when he's you know he he's left for as dead, a slave. Yeah. yeah. Well, he's left for dead. Yeah. Then he's working as a slave. Then he's thrown in prison. So. There's a lot of things that, you know, he could have gone like, okay, where, what is, what's wrong with God? God must either be impotent or God must be uh, evil himself in, in his own consciousness because, he, you know, he was gaining the larger perspective that he eventually gained the, the bigger perspective about what all of the, these evil things that happened to him ultimately meant. 
And that, this is where it's so important to trust, like you've said, Ross, to trust God's nature. I, again, I even think about this young woman we're praying for and her parents, and to think, man, that could really harden someone's heart toward God if you don't really believe Romans 8, 28, that God will work all things together. Even though I might not see it, I don't have a broad enough picture in view to understand it. I can't imagine in my lifetime how that could ever have been a good thing. If I was God, I would heal her. So you can start bargaining like that. But at the end of the day, go back to our lesson on God's nature. God is always good, but mm-hmm. but he's also all-knowing. We're not all-knowing. Right. So it's hard for us to it's hard for us to judge him, right? It's not right for us to Absolutely. judge him. Absolutely. We can't really hold him to account because we don't know all the facts. And so, for example, in Joseph's case in the book of Genesis, um, the big picture that we find later on in the story, after he's been through all of these difficulties and been maltreated in all these different ways, that um, God gives him an opportunity to have a position in the government of Egypt that allowed um, thousands and thousands of lives to be saved because he took steps and took action to uh, prevent or or to uh, prepare for a massive regional famine that, that hit. And so lots and lots of lives were saved because it wouldn't have happened if he hadn't been in Egypt. How did God you, uh, get him to Egypt? He used the evil choices of his brothers and of the slavers and of uh, uh, the, whole, the whole chain of events to put Joseph in the right time, in the right place, to be his instrument to save thousands and thousands of lives. Now, another example, and uh, some people out there who really know their Bibles might be saying, well, what about, what about Pharaoh, right? You know, how, how does God's sovereignty work in the story of Pharaoh? Because this is one that's going to kind of open up a little bit some of the question of, you know, mm-hmm. Calvinism versus Arminianism, right? And this mm-hmm. is, I'm sure a lot of people are thinking that already. Right, that's in the backdrop for sure, because those are two, those are two approaches to the whole question of God's governance and human choice. But so Pharaoh, Moses comes to Pharaoh and, and says, let my people go. They'd been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. God wants to deliver them from Egypt. He picks Moses as his spokesman. Moses goes to Pharaoh. Pharaoh holds the strings. You know, he's the one who has control over everything. And, and uh, for a minute, he thinks about letting them go. But um, Exodus 8 says that Pharaoh hardened his heart against Israel, whereas Exodus 4 tells us that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Well, which is it? Well, it, it really... There's no contradiction. It could be, be but the idea of concurrence is that Pharaoh's choice and God's choice work together, and and we get a picture in Exodus. The reason why that that God worked that way is because through this mighty deliverance of Israel from Egypt, um, He made His power known, and and people today even still go back and say and look at the deliverance of Israel from Exodus as a as an inspiring. Um, story that lets encourages them about what God can do in their lives, and so so God says, well, from God's point of view, He's going like, well, if Pharaoh makes it easy, then you know they won't have this great story to tell that's going to change people's lives forever. Pharaoh, in his heart, is thinking something different, right? He's thinking, well, if I let them go, then I'll be seen as weak, and and I need all their labor, and I won't, you know, he's got his own political agenda and so forth. Well, that, so that two concur, so that. Um, God's purpose is ultimately done. So, Ross, who has who who has a harder time 
with this particular topic, a Calvinist or an Arminian? You know, I, let's just, uh, we've got a lot of, a lot of stuff in the Pursue God Library on those topics. Mm-hmm. Encourage people to check that out if you're interested. We've done a good job of not even bringing that into the picture, but I'm sure that people, if people are aware of the debate, they're already probably processing some of the things we're saying mm-hmm. through a framework of either right. Calvinism or Arminianism. Let's just take a minute right. to speak to that. Right. Well, this, per, this pers- particular perspective that we put together is probably leans soft Calvinist a little bit. You know, even even introducing the language of primary and secondary causes is kind of a Calvinist-ish approach. And so, um, you know, Ar- the Ar- Arminian perspective elevates more the independence of the human will um, and, and operates more on the basis of God's foreknowledge, that God could see that it was going to happen, where the Calvinist point of view probably elevates a little bit more the sense of God's actual governance, his actual involvement, and, and probably puts a little less emphasis on the independence of the human will. Yeah, I know some of the hardcore Calvinists that I know would probably say, no, this leans Arminian. This isn't good enough for them, <laughs> yeah. 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 Yep. And I, I think, you know, again, I just always encourage, whenever I, with my discipling relationships, those are some of my favorite topics to cover, just to see people get exposed to some of this. And I, you know, I would say, Ross, I think it's good if it really causes us to feel some tension. Yeah. Because, because we're not God, we're not perfect, we're not in control. And I think we, we have this illusion, I think especially in America today, we just have this such an illusion of control, and we can turn lights on with our voices today, Ross. <laughs> right. Right? Before, it was only God who could do that. Right. <laughs> well, we can do that now. So I think there's an illusion of control in our lives, mm-hmm. and I think it's really good for us to be, un- to be pushed a little bit, to feel, to, to, to push back on God's, on God. No, I guess not push back on God's sovereignty, but really try to wrap our mind around right. God's providence, His sovereignty, right. His work in our world, and our and our interaction with that, right. and our our submission to His rule. I love how how Paul addresses in Romans this whole thing of, of harden, hardening Pharaoh's heart, and you know he says, "Who who are you?" O clay to say to the potter, hey, mm-hmm. wait a second, why did you make me this way? I, the way I've always read that, Ross, is I don't think that Paul is necessarily supporting the Calvinist perspective. I think he's just saying God can do what he wants. God can do what he wants. Yeah. Right. And that's the whole idea. If we say that God is in charge, then we have to grapple with some of these related issues. But where I like to come down on it, Brian, is, is for me, it's a great encouragement to come back. If God, God really is in charge, that he can even use evil things to bring about good. You know, it shows that through the, even the crucifixion and through the story of Joseph that that God is big enough. He's not like he's not like hopelessly standing on the sidelines, going, "Oh man, what 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 should I do? I wish I could do something to help." You know, no, that God is actively involved, even in the hardest things. And and I I have this great compassion for people who've been through some really hard things, been through ch- child abuse as a young person or whatever it might have been, been through debilitating disease, whatever it might have been. But in, no matter how hard it is, we know that God can bring forth good, and his, his purpose is to bring forth good out of the, even the most difficult evil things because he's caring for his creation. He's preserving, he's working forward, and everything is moving toward his purposes. Life is not random. Life is not just like, oh, uh, I hope things work out okay. You know, today it, we live in an anxious society today where people go like, man, what happens if 
what happens if, you know, climate change turns my state into an absolute desert? Um, what happens if, or, or floods, you know, uh, whatever happens with, with, the, with China and, their, and the war in, the, in Russia and all the rest? Well, those are horrible things. But we understand that God is still in control and he's bringing about his purposes. And so we really can tr trust in that. Because his purposes are good. Right. And that's why we, we covered God's nature before we mm -hmm. covered his work, because it's important to understand this whole topic in the context of God's nature. Go back to the God's... Now you can go back and listen again to the God's nature podcast yeah. and, and be encouraged that, okay, I, I can't see the whole picture, and I certainly can't control not even a little part of the picture. I think we're... As, we're we think we're powerful. We think we're in control. We're not. You know, I think yeah. about Steve Jobs. You know, at the time of his death, he was one of the wealthiest men on the face of the planet, and he did everything he could possibly do to try to beat cancer. And he couldn't beat cancer. Ultimately, yeah. Because he's not in control. Yeah. And it doesn't matter, you know, how strong or how big or how rich or whatever that you are, how smart you are, how famous you are, or not or how poor right. you are. Right. God is in control, and that's a good thing because God is good. It's right. better than if we were in control yeah. of our own lives. Yeah, amen. True. So that's God's work. All right, so Ross, we finished up the first module of four in our Systematic Theology series. What's the next module? We've talked about God so far. What are we going to talk about starting next week? Well, we're going to sort of transition. I'm calling the module uh, God and Man, or God and Humanity, because we're going to look at the person of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, we're going to look at human nature, and Jesus, it being the next uh, topic, kind of leads us into this because he is both God and man. And so we're going to dig more deeply into his nature and character, understand the Holy Spirit, understand humanity. And so it's, it's a little bit of a catch-all, but it, it really is integrated by the idea of God and, and humanity, uh, kind of transitioning more than into the future we'll talk about salvation and other things after that so join us next time as we get into topic four again if you want to use any of the resources that we have to talk about today's topic with your family your small group or your mentor you can find these podcasts you can find articles scripture references and discussion questions at pursuegod.org forward slash sis theo this was topic three join us next time for topic four <laughs>